It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And uh, today we're reading chapters 125 through 130. Um, we're getting very close to the end of the book. Yeah, yeah. We've like we've been saying that. It's still true. Yep, yep. Uh, it, in fact, we'll only get more true until <laughs> we do reach the end of the book. That is how like progression through a linear narrative works. <laughs> I'm pretty sure even if it's not a linear narrative, that's how progression through a book works. Unless it's a choose-your-own-adventure. Yeah, yeah, that is pr- how, pr- I mean, I feel like a a book that you read from beginning to end can reasonably in some sense be called a linear narrative, even if it's, like, full of flashbacks and stuff, you know? Like, I suppose, but there are certainly books where it's not even flashbacks, it's just that the story is tor- told out of order, but you have to, you have to read it linearly because it's just a novel. That's yeah, like, produced, I guess, produced. I guess I wouldn't call, like, Cloud Atlas a, quote, linear narrative, but mm-hmm. the novel is a linear form yes um turns out uh text is a basically linear form um you heard it here first i i i guess you look so smug about that you gene look Wolf like once said that uh gene wolf has a whole thing about uh text and linearity so that's okay. why i'm feeling smug i'm remembering a gene wolf thing i thought you thought you were like getting one over on like concrete poets or something no. What? <laughs> well, I was just trying to think who who would attempt to make text go in more than one direction. Gene Wolfe. Uh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> but but you see, you looked like you thought you had won. I was just being bemused by a joke I was telling myself involving Gene Wolfe, linear text, and uh, we have gone on to this bit far too long. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I I think what I've learned is that I interpret, like, a normal expression of, like, pleasure with a thing that you said on your face as, like, a victory over someone. (laughs) This explains a lot. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. Um... Speaking of victory over things. Yeah, okay, let's let's talk about the, the book. Yeah. Um, Chapter 125, The Log and Line, which is a uh, has been uh foretold in that uh Ahab declared himself Lord of the Legal Lord of the Level Log and Line. He loves alliteration. Yeah, Lots. so <laughs> something uh that I feel like I need to confess at this point is that I have so far in the book been very confused about what the log and line is oh you you should have asked well i made an assumption that i thought was really safe because i was like i know what a log is on a (laughs) ship it's like a book where you keep track of things and obviously you would use that in navigation so and i know that a line is a rope so i don't know precisely how the rope and the book are interrelated but somehow you're keeping track of how far you've come and maybe you're (sighs) using a rope that you've 
Like, I mm-hmm. maybe even thought in my mind, oh, you're throwing a rope out in the water to, like, measure your speed somehow, and then you're recording that in a book, right? No. Well... I, I was wrong. No, you're completely right. The book, The Log, gets its name from The Log, if I remember correctly. Oh! Wait a minute. Really? I believe that is the that is at least the uh, etymology I have been told about a ship's log being related to the log and line, a kind of measurement system where the log is a float that goes yeah. back along with along the boat after you let it out on a rope. This way, by by measuring the and this is also why uh, naval speed is measured in knots because there are knots on the rope to show distance. Yeah, and so I, I think maybe the, the the clearest thing to do would just be to read the PowerMovieDick.com annotation here that just sure. literally defines what the log and line is. A device for measuring a ship's speed. A log, a triangular piece of wood attached to a knotted rope, is thrown into the water and then watched to see how many knots run out on the rope within a set time period. So. So yeah, that's how you measure the speed of a boat. It's how many knots go past in a given amount of time, which is why knots, which uh, are not quite the same thing, I believe, as nautical miles, uh, became a measurement of speed. Yeah, and also, yeah, it looks like you are correct that the term log, as in log book, comes from this usage of a piece of wood. It's very cool, in my opinion. Uh, so this also means that if you've ever had a log in a video game or anything like that, you are secretly a boat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in some essential qualities. Sure. I, <sighs> I Wouldn't that make you secretly like a captain and the video game is the boat? Or I'm not picky. <laughs> sure. Um, so, the log in line. Now we know what the log in line is. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, um... Ahab, who has declared he is lord of the level, log, and line, a phrase I will never get tired of saying, but may occasionally fail to say, because it's a lot of L's in quick succession. Yeah, I feel like you've really set yourself up for failure here. The first time you said it on the podcast, you stumbled. Are you just going to see if you get better with repetition? Well, I already just did. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Anyways, so uh, Ahab... um, is planning to use the log and line. And in fact, it's mentioned that this is no longer really often used. Y- yeah, so it, in, in fact, yeah, so it's like, um, the the Pequod has one. Um, and it sounds like in general, every vessel would have, like, a set of these. Yeah, but... by, by tradition, and because it used to be more used. But now, quote, uh, owing to a confident reliance upon other means of determining the vessel's place, some merchantmen and many whalemen, especially when cruising, wholly neglect to heave the log. And heaving the log, obviously, is throwing the wooden log over the wa- side of the ship. So you heave yeah. it, and then you measure. I just really love the image. Wholly neglect to heave the log. <laughs> You've left your log unheaved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it sounds like... um. This kind of reminds me of, like, the way that a lot of uh, stuff gets done at my job, and I I assume at, like, basically every job, where it's like, so they're not throwing the log into the water to measure the speed of the ship on a regular basis. In fact, they're using it so infrequently that the actual physical object is, like, rotting. But they are uh, periodically, uh, for for purely, like, purely for for appearance's sake, um, recording... Uh, the ship's speed in a logbook. Yeah. Uh, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, which, like, it makes me think of how, uh, I don't know, like, like, 
Just things that come into habit and then continue to be done, even though the infrastructure that makes it a meaningful habit doesn't exist anymore. Exactly. And, and like, things where it's like, mm, yeah, we really are supposed to be checking all the temperatures on all our fridges every two hours and writing down the temperatures. And then if they're not within a certain range, we're supposed to, like, do something about it. But everyone knows that this one fridge is always about 50 degrees, and it doesn't really matter because it doesn't have any food in it, so... <laughs> like... <sighs> That's that's how this comes off to me. Okay. Um, but yes, uh, and the Pequod was not um, unusual in this. The Pequod uh, did not, in fact, heave the log or pursue this. And so I love this description of the wooden reel and angular log attached hung long untouched just beneath the railing of the after bulwarks. Rains and spray had damped it. Sun and wind had warped it. All the elements had combined to rot a thing that hung so idly. So there's this idea of, like, the entire, everything about being at sea has conspired to destroy the level log and line that uh, Ahab is now turning to to prove his, uh, you know, mastery over the boat and its environs. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. You, you you put it as though, like, oh, Ahab has declared himself that he's going to use these tools, and, and so he does this. So, But the way his actual decision to heave the log is described is, like, a little bit more, um, a little less logical than that. I mean, I think the mood seizes him because he'd previously declared himself. Uh, yes, no, but, but, I mean, what it, yes, but it, it's kind of like... It's kind of like he looks, he happens, his eye happens to fall on it, and he's like, oh, right, the log and line. I could use those. In fact, I said I was going to use those. All right, I'm going to. Yeah, see, the way I interpret it is more like he's like, ah. Like, he sees the log and line, he goes, right, I am lord of the level lodestone and the level log and line, so I should do this thing. Even though it seems basically unnecessary to the current sailing of the ship with their Right, purposes. I guess that's kind of what I'm saying, right? Is that he's not in a position, like, even though... I guess I, I something I don't actually understand is, like, what other means the Pequod has of determining its speed, or, like, whether... I mean, I don't think it really has a means of determining its speed right now. It's just that they're, the place they're aiming for is large. They're headed in the right direction, and... On some level, they're just going to sail around in the middle of the ocean until they find Moby Dick. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, like, knowing your exact speed is, it, it when you're in a place that doesn't really have any, like, landmarks, I guess it's not actually that relevant. Well, actually, it's, an, it's extremely relevant because that's the only way you can determine where you are precisely. But Ahab doesn't particularly care because now that he's ended up, like, his charts do not particularly care whether, where they're ranging across the, uh, um, the season on the line, only that they are. Yeah, so, like, in terms of, like, assuming, theoretically, that Ahab is thinking about a, a time after they kill Moby Dick. Yeah, you know, that, that thing that could be happening. Sure, sure, sure. I, we all understand that's a big ask, but, but if we imagine that to be a thing that is the case, um, I guess his plan in that case would be basically just sail off in a direction until we hit land or until we encounter another ship that can tell us yeah, something about where we are. Yeah, I suspect it would be more... Uh, Find another ship, maybe construct a replacement, uh, you know, uh, quadrant. There's various things that one could do to try to use, you know, your general shipboard knowledge to find a more or less effective location. Um, but on some level, once you've lost uh, lost track of your speed, lost your uh, quadrant, and generally don't have a number of these tools, 
you're mostly just going to be asking, hey, wh could you point us out on a map where we are? Our, um, our quadrant got broken and our compasses got turned, and as we'll see here, our log and line is questionable and not often done. None of this is my fault. Yeah. I just killed God. Hi. Yeah, so... So, Ahab orders, uh, for the log to be heaved. Yep. God, that really is just so funny. And Forward there. Heave the log! <laughs> and, uh, two sailors go to do it, who I, I think both of these are people who've been mentioned before. Yep, so they're yep. referred to with the definite article, the golden-hued Tahitian and the grizzly Manxman. Yeah, so um, the Tahitian is not... Like, you know how we have just a ton of sailors from islands all over the world? Yeah. The Tahitian is just here as sort of a representative of Tahiti, but the Manxman has shown up before. Yeah, well, well, I'm pretty sure that... I think, do you remember that chapter where there was just, like, a bunch of sailors? And yeah, like yeah, the Tahitian showed up there. Yeah, so, like, he's not... This is not his first mention, but no, he, he no. hasn't really been, like, a significant character. And the Manxman has been slightly more a, yeah, the, a meaningful minor character. The Manxman is here to share his folksy Manx wisdom. Yes, he's, he's, he's shown up to, like, have... To superstitions? Yeah, to have superstitions to foretell doom. Um, he was the one who pointed out that uh, that Leo is, is shaped like a horseshoe. The thing we completely failed to understand for like a solid five minutes. More than a solid five minutes? We didn't figure it out until like... No, we didn't keep talking about it for Yeah, long. yeah, but like I... I, I only count active time. Okay. But Anyways, like the, let's... The realization of like, oh right, the sign of Leo, that could have come to me at any point in the like, I want to say days between recording the episode and writing the summary. You don't need to admit this on air, Mark. <laughs> anyway, um, so they're, uh, they're trying to heave the log in line. Yep. Um, and the, I, uh... I think this is like a two man job because you've got to have one person to watch the, the rope, watch the knots go by, and another person, like, hold up the reel that the rope spins out on. Yep. And the Manxman is holding the reel of rope. Uh, holding the spool of line is the more technically correct way of putting it. Um, and, uh, he's not happy about it. The Manxman is, uh, he says, Sir, I mistrust it. He thinks the, uh, line is going to snap, that it's rotted. Yeah, and, uh, and then there's kind of, like, one of these back and forths that Ahab is just constantly having with everybody at this point. Mm -hmm. Like, this has always been a hallmark of how Ahab interacts with the crew, but I think as we get closer to the fatal encounter, Ahab is just, like, doing sure, this shit sure. more. Um, where he just, like, sort of banters with someone and, like, says a bunch of, like, elusive stuff where he, like, compares that person to some kind of figure. And the other person is just like, um... Sir, I have a, a sailing matter to talk to you about. <laughs> Sir, the boat. Sir, the boat. <laughs> uh, and and uh, in this, he's like, uh, you know. Um, you know, Ahab, Ahab says that the line will hold. And the Mason's like, I, I don't think so, but you're the boss. And this, um, this generates some Ahab. Yeah, yeah. Um. The major, like, thing that happens here is that, uh, you know, he asks where the Manxman was born, and the Manxman's like, the Isle of Man, and Ahab's like, oh, the Isle of Man? Yeah, excellent, thou hits the world by that. I, I know not, sir, but I was born there. In the Isle of Man, hey? Well, the other way, it's good. Here's a man from man, a man born in once independent man, and now unmanned of man, which is sucked in. By what? Yeah, I genuinely don't actually fully understand what's going on here, although I think... I think that what he means by 
well the other way it's good is something about like man being born from man which is the opposite of how that normally happens i really didn't i think that it's what he says in the little rocky isle of man thou hits the world by that he said you know i was born you know in the the rocky isle of man he's like yes ah the world oh yeah you were born in the whole world and then you know no no sir i I was born in in like man the, the specific island called man he's like okay okay even if you know even if we accept not you know you as a type of all humanity but as a specific there's still something there and that's the other way i think mm, yeah maybe you're right maybe you're right um a man from man uh and you know also this idea of man being once independent is now suborned to some uh powerful empire you know the british empire oh sure once independent man although i think that would have been very like his historically distant at this point i don't think that he would have been born in an independent man no but but yeah no i I, you're probably right that that's what has that's what's going on there anyway i i don't think that like picking apart this entire little speech is too uh, i think we're done yeah but but it just uh you know it's ahab he's ahabbing uh anyway though there is one line here which i do think is interesting which is um you know by what up with the real the dead blind wall butts all inquiring heads at last like there's just a there's a limit to useful knowledge or information in the material world at least i read it as the material world but just the idea that like you know there's just this solid thing you run up against and then you have to deal with it mechanically yeah yeah i i think uh he has no respect for it but yeah i mean i i think he kind of means by that that like okay, there is a limit to my just, like, discourse. I do at some point need to interact with physical reality, by which I mean heave the log. Yes. Yeah, he runs up against this, uh, the dead blind wall, the, you know, just materiality things. Yeah, it's just, I I feel like the thing that's uh, slightly weird here is that interacting with the log and line is, in fact, like, uh, determining information from materiality. You know, it's, it's, it's not actually, uh, but it's not, it's not the kind of inquisition that he's become excited for with the Manxman. Yes. Also the dead blind wall might also be the Manxman's deep disinterest in this line of questioning. (laughs) Yes. He's he's presumably just staring like (laughs) at Ahab being, being old, grizzled and superstitious, but in no way wanting to talk about this. Yes. Okay. So they heave the log and And the Manxman is completely right. The, the line snaps. Yep. Yep. Uh, the Manxman staggers as the line is pulled, and then you get a snap, like literally, you know, the word snap with an exclamation point at the beginning of the line, and, uh, the log is gone, and Ahab is, um, Ahab's reaction is very Ahab. Yeah, yeah. I crush the quadrant, the thunder turns the needles, and now the mad sea parts the log line, but Ahab can mend all. Yeah, and then he calls for, uh, basically for... You know, the, a new log to be made and, and the, the line to be fixed. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, obviously they've got the materials to do that on board. It's not that difficult to get another log. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh... Like, the, the materiality of it, he's just like, yeah, okay, fuck it, that one's broken, make a new one. Yes, but, um... But, uh... You know, the Manxman is definitely like, yeah, this is like a bad omen. Like, he thinks that we've just lost a piece of wood, but but to me, the skewer seems loosening out of the middle of the world. Um, like, everything is coming apart. Yes. Li- the center cannot hold. <laughs> you know, some 
uh, 70, 80 years before that line. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, literally, yeah. the skewer is loosening out of the yeah, middle of the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, Clearly, someone should try and analyze whether there are gyres in Moby Dick. The, like, the weird shape that's like an hourglass that uh, Yeats thought was, like, fundamental to history and human thought. There was, like, maybe a two-week period in college where I considered getting really into that. <laughs> Yates or gyres? I mean, both. You can't yeah, really. Yeah, that's fair enough. You can't really get really into gyres if you're not getting really into Yates. <laughs> yeah, but you could get really into Yates without getting really into gyres. Sure, but no, it was. It, it was that I was in a class on like you know, I don't remember what the class was at all. Sure, but sure. We read some Yates, and I was like, huh, this is like gyres thing. Yeah, but instead you ended up getting into dialectics. <laughs> I don't know how much I can accurately be described as being into dialectics. I don't know that much about dialectics. Uh, fair enough. In any case, uh, I do like his line also here, which is, These lines run whole and whirling out, come in broken and dragging slow. And then he sees Pip. Yep, yep. Uh, Pip, who also has been, like, tossed out to sea yep. and pulled Run back Run whole broken. and whirling out and came in broken. Yep, yep, yep. yep. And uh, then, well, also, you know, this is going to be our continuous problem because we're like, oh yeah, this is Pip, and he's like, who are you calling Pip? Pip Pip's is dead. Missing. Yeah, Pip drowned. <laughs> Pip's gone. Pip's a coward. <sighs> uh, so yeah, he's, uh, as usual, he's he's doing his talk about how, like, Pip is missing, and let's see if we can find him, but also, like, fuck that coward. Um, uh, yep, yep, yep. In fact, there's, like, this bit where he, um, you know, I think, uh, sees him as, uh, sees the log as Pip for a moment, is like, ah, cut the line. Oh, good, it's already broken. Yes, exactly. Uh, Captain Ahab, sir, sir, here's Pip trying to get on board again. <laughs> Prepare to repel Pip. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and, and, uh, the, the Manxman, you know, unsurprisingly is like, oh, get away from here, you crazy loon. Literally, uh, thou crazy loon. Yeah, but, uh, Ahab decides, uh, to, uh, get involved yeah yeah and and decides that he has enormous pip respect look he um he specifically says the greater idiot ever scolds the lesser yes. about the makes been trying to chase uh pip off uh yes and 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 then uh he he basically there follows like an exchange here between ahab and pip where ahab is just like constantly giving these weird little asides where he's like Oh, there's, like, such sort of, like, mystery in this being. I mean, I don't really see it as mystery. It's sympathy. Ahab has found someone he can genuinely, like, feel... He genuinely feels really bad for. Like, mm, yeah, he says... True. And who are... You know, um... He's like, where sayest thou Pip was, boy? Astern there, sir, astern, lo, lo. And who art thou, boy? I see not my reflection in the vacant pupils of thy eyes. Oh, God, that man should be a thing for immortal souls to sieve through. Yeah, so I guess this is basically Ahab actually only realizing now, like, what's going on with Pip. The fact yeah. that, like, Pip has, you know, to put it in sort of modern psychological terms, that Pip is, like, fully dissociated and, like, depersonalized. Yeah, um, yeah. And in Ahab's turn, Pip's soul has fallen out of his body. Yes. Um, he, has, he has been destroyed by the world and by the ocean, and Ahab's immediately like, you know, ah, someone who has also received a wound as terrible as mine like someone who has been annihilated but someone far you know younger and less like i mean vicious and and terrible as old thunder yeah and and he's very yeah as you say he's he's very sympathetic to pip um yeah i was kind of looking ahead by saying that he sees mystery in pip that really happens in the later chapters yeah, yeah. but at this moment ahab is like you know 
like you poor thing you've been like abandoned by heaven yeah specifically it's you know um there can be no hearts above the snow line like no heart could fail to be melted by this uh oh i i thought what that meant is there must be no hearts in heaven like heaven has to be heartless to have done to have allowed this to happen i think it's i think it's both because he does then say oh frozen have oh ye frozen heavens look down here ye did beget this luckless child and have abandoned him ye creative libertines Mm, but i guess he could also be saying yeah there's no such thing as a heart that is always frozen even my heart melts yeah yeah and specifically i think he means like right now nobody could be unmoved by pip if they understood what was going on with him and then by comparison like, I think it's a very, it's one of those little metaphorical turns that the book sometimes does that's really nice, where it begins with, oh, no heart, all hearts would have to melt, but there are hearts that are above the, uh, above the, uh, the snow line, because they're, you know, in heaven, they're definitionally still frozen, so heaven is still frozen. That way that the, like, the little turn there happens does yeah. a very good job of contrasting sort of, like, human sympathy to heavenly, uh, apathy. Yes, yeah. And, uh, he, he, he basically decides to adopt? Question mark. Pip? Question mark. (laughs) Like, he, he says, uh, uh, Ahab's cabin shall be Pip's home henceforth. And he, he takes his hand. Um, Yeah. Thou touchest my inmost center, boy. Thou art tied to me by cords woven of my heartstrings. Yeah. And, and it's definitely, like... It's weird. Yeah, this is all extremely weird. Like, he is, you know, I say he's, like, adopting him, but he doesn't at any point call him son. Um, and, like... The relationship is weird. Yeah. It's not, like, it's not gross or anything. It does seem to genuinely be the two of them find some deep sympathy between each other, but what it fundamentally is is that both of them have been broken and harmed and can, like see that in each other and we'll get a little bit more discussion of like yeah how this functions and also it's like there's this weird element to this where just like ahab gets to tell pip where to go yeah like, ahab's still captain well yes i i just mean that like a fundamental element of this is that ahab tells pip to go down into the cabin and then you know we'll see how that goes further on yeah and there is like i think a like yes ahab is the captain so he can tell everyone on the ship where to go at any time uh, but I don't think it's, like, of no... I don't think it's totally unworthy of notice that it is specifically Pip who is this, like, black boy. Who yes, is in the position I... of, like, being... Pip feels very controlled by Ahab Yes, here. I mean, there's there's a line at the end of the chapter that I think really gets to this. But first I want to go through Pip's reaction, which is... Um, I mean, Pip literally says, if Pip had felt, uh, you know, so kind a hand as this, perhaps he never would have been lost. Yeah, yeah, he, he calls the, he calls the uh, you know, Ahab's hand reached out to him a man rope, something that weak souls may hold by. And by man rope, MobyDick.com cites that as a rope used as a handrail. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, literally he's like, this is, this is something I can hold on to and not fall overboard. But, um, you know, I think also obviously there's a, a connection to this idea of like man like the universal brotherhood of yeah man, yeah yeah you know like... no it's it's absolutely this idea that it's like um it's strengthening him as a human being and as a person um and you know he's based he, he pretty much literally says wow if i'd had you know the emotional support of ahab before 
I would not have completely depersonalized. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, like, uh, uh, Pip does, like, uh, agree to this new relationship. Um, he, he, he calls for, uh, he says, you know, let, let old Perth now come and rivet these two hands together. Like, he, he wants to hold Ahab's hand for the rest of his life. Yep, yep. And, you know, Ahab says, uh, you know, I will not, you know, abandon thee or let thee go, unless by this I drag thee to worse horrors uh, than are here. And he also, you know, Ahab is definitely seeing Pip as a sign and a type for something. Because, you know, he says, Lo, ye believers in God's all goodness, and in man all ill. Lo, you, see the omniscient gods oblivious of suffering man, and man, though idiotic and knowing not what he does, yet full of the sweet things of love and gratitude. So he's basically saying, look, Pip's it actually, like, Pip is kind and good and a nice person and, like, is full of love and gratitude. The gods, meanwhile, are full of, you know, cruelty and evil. Therefore, Pip is superior as, like, the least of humanity to the gods. Yeah. And, and I and, think that's sort of the crucial element here. Yes. And and this this whole least of humanity thing is certainly, uh, you know, Partially racial, racial yeah. yeah. He's, um, he's young, he's black, he's... Uh, He's crazy, like, he's, he's mentally been destroyed this way. And even, all of the... also, like, even before he was uh, crazy, he was, like, the least of the ship, right? Yeah, like, he, was, he was the ship's boy and, um, you know, was understood to be a bit of a coward. Yeah, um, so, yeah. like, yeah, Pip, Pip is kind of, like, the... The, the weakest yes. link. Yes, absolutely. And, in fact, literally, the old Manxman says, uh, calls the two of them, one daft with strength, the other with weakness. Yes. Um... <sighs> and also... The chapter ends with him pulling up the end of the rotten line, saying, Mend it, eh? I think we had best have a new line altogether. And I think that's interesting. Like, yeah. what's, the, what's the broken line that's being sort of allegorized here? What's, what is being compared to the rotten line that cannot be replaced? Is it Pip? Hmm. Is it Ahab? Is it, like, I, is it humanity? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, I do think it's, like, like... Gesturally symbolic. Yeah, like, when, when I was reading this chapter, I kind of assumed that when Ahab said, like, mend it, he meant get a new rope. Because this rope is obviously so, like, old and rotted that it will just break. Uh, but no, clearly what was meant by that was, like, literally... Or was understood by the Manxman. Or, yeah. Was, like, literally mend this rope. Like, reweave it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so, you know, um... I mean, I think that the idea of, like, the question of whether Ahab has, is, like, sentimental about this broken thing or, uh, or is, like, saying, yes, we should, you know, we should care for this and repair it, that's certainly being understood. That's the way this is being understood by the Manxman. I don't know mm. if that's what Ahab intended for the log and line, but I will say that Ahab will mend all. His idea that, like, no matter what the world can do to him or his crew or his ship, he can personally... Or at least he will try to personally assign, you know, assign duties. He's not doing it himself, but set things back in order so that the ship can continue. And I think that there's a certain element of that here with Pip, where, you know, he's not going to abandon Pip because, in part, he sees Pip as a victim of the same forces as himself. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Yep, yep. Um, <sighs> but, yeah, the phrase daft with strength versus daft with weakness... Yeah, it's it's a very interesting uh, way. Ahab of is intoxicated them. by his pride and his ability to mend all, set all in motion, 
Meanwhile, you know, obviously I think Daft with Weakness doesn't need a lot of description for Pip. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> ready, uh, ready to move on? Yeah, I think so. It's a, it's a good chapter, but I think we're ready to go on to 126, The Life Boy. Yeah, so, uh, so, um, so they are, they're sailing, continuing to sail on towards the equator, um, and, uh, they, they pass by, uh, like a little, like a rocky shoal, basically, like a, Mm -hmm. they're described as, uh, a cluster of rocky islets. Yeah, so, uh, presumably these are, like, not inhabited by humans, or at least if they are inhabited by humans, those humans are not seen by anyone on the peck yeah it sounds like they're if they're rocky as they're probably like un uh no tr- they probably don't have any trees or like green growing yeah things on it's them. probably literally just like a bunch of rocks sticking especially out of because these are uh described as being like seal rocks like a seal rookery yes so they uh they pass by these these rocks and uh they hear like an unearthly cry uh i believe they hear a number of them well, it says a cry, so plaintively mm. wild and unearthly. But but it sounds like it is a, it sounds like it is a cry of many voices. Um, yeah. The, the, the comparison is like half articulated wailings of the ghosts of all Herod's murdered innocents, um, which is a, a reference to like, um, you know this this, part of like the Christmas story mm-hmm. where, uh, you know the cruel King Herod, trying to uh, prevent the the birth of the king of the jews has all of the jesus we mean jesus yes but but like that's the yeah he he like he doesn't know which specific person it's going to be so he has all male babies in jerusalem sure, sure. I, I just wanted to make it very clear that this is a, a christian story right? yes this is a christian story yes yeah, that's yeah, why yeah. i said it was part of the christmas story no i i know i just i wanted to spe- specifically spell that out because you know the, the phrase king of the jews in yes i'm not trying to i'm Yes, that is a, like, Christian idea, the king of the Jews. Yes. Um, uh, but the point is, Herod has all male babies in Bethlehem... Uh, slaughtered. Slaughtered. Um, and that's the that's the murder of the innocents. Um, yeah. I'm actually more interested also in uh, what Power Moby Dick says about the, um, the reference to um, how the sailors all, you know, are, like, frozen listening to this wailing described as, like, the carved Roman slave... There's no citation on that one, actually. I, I, I mean, I, I don't think that. That's clearly a reference to a specific thing. Yeah, it does seem like it probably is, but I just but... have no idea what it is. Yeah. It, you know, it... you could. I guess you could look it up, but it's, yeah. it's not that important. I just it stood out to me as an obvious reference, and I was wondering if Power Movie Dick had it, but it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um. It, it, it definitely does sound like it's meant to refer to a particular sculpture. Um, it seems like there are a bunch of sculptures by Michelangelo that are, like, called, like, the slave of various types. Uh, but I don't know, like, which, if any of those, this mm. is meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, is, it does seem like, yeah, some reference to a particular sculpture of someone, like, listening and mm-hmm. and because it's sculpture, like transfixed in that posture forever. Yeah. Um. And and that's how everyone on the Pequod, or at least everyone on the watch, everyone who's awake, mm-hmm. um, is when they hear this cry. Also, I love this this phrase. The Christian or civilized part of the crew said it was mermaids and shuddered, but the pagan harpooners remained unappalled. And it's just like, ah, oh, yes, the Christian or civilized ones are the ones that are like mermaids. 
Yes, mermaids are totally a part of a Christian cosmology. Yeah, it's <laughs> being civilized is what causes you to believe in and fear mermaids. Yeah, um, but the, uh, the Manxman's theory is that these are the voices of newly drowned men in the sea. Um, so <sighs> that's, uh, th- that's, that's his uh, take on this horrible sound. Yep, yep. Thanks, um, Manxman. Always yeah. helpful. Um, and then uh, when Ahab hears about this in the morning, Ahab has a totally, uh, you know... Um, Ahab hollowly laughed as well. Yes, and he has like a, a totally non-supernatural explanation. Yeah, and specifically that the crew has all been like whispering about it. Uh, when Flask comes to him, he's like hinting at dark meanings like, there was a strange cry heard in the night, Captain. And Ahab is just like, ha... It was seals. Yes. Uh, Ahab claims these are, you know, either uh, seal, like baby seals that have lost their mothers or mother seals that have lost their cubs. And those are the ones that they they must have swum up near the ship and started crying. And, you know, seals do have this sort of weirdly human sound. And they've just sailed sailed past these uh, seal rookeries. Which... Here's the thing. That is like a material explanation. You don't have to believe in mermaids or ghosts or whatever. But that is not at all reassuring to anyone because everyone <laughs> is also superstitious about seals. And like there's a general kind of idea that like maybe seals are themselves mermaids. Like yeah, mermaids are like the souls of the drowned because they because they have this human like cry and because there's this line in the sea under certain circumstances seals have more than once been mistaken for men yeah um but yeah the seals are not uh unspooky yeah and also like the idea of like uh bereaved seals it's so sad it is it is seals are really good i love seals i love seeing them in maine um i do want to jump back very briefly which is just because of because of Ahab being like, no, this is Seals. I know this place. You know, it, it makes sense uh, given his general demeanor and position. But also there's this uh, first line of the chapters is, Steering now southeastward by Ahab's leveled steel and her progress solely determined by Ahab's level log and line. Um, there's this, uh, about the Pequod, there's this idea that everything is now within uh, Ahab's compass. His power is more and more advanced. Yes. And here is him, like, trying to set this, like, aside and deal with it. Um, and not really succeeding, because the crew are superstitious. Yeah, and, uh, and, uh, you know, that, that morning, um, there's a, a kind of, like, a further upsetting event, uh, which is that the, uh, the, basically the first guy who goes, uh, to watch at the masthead, um, falls from it into the water. Beware of it, you pantheists. Yeah, and uh, and obviously they throw him the life boy, which is the the title of the chapter. This is like a like a a cask of wood, um, which is like sealed up and filled with air so that it will float. Yeah, it's it's a cask of wood that's been caulked and pitched and riveted shut, and yeah, it'll it'll float in the water so someone can hang on to it. Uh, unfortunately, this one, much like the log and line, has been so long unused that the um, uh, cask has shrunk and the wood has shrunk, so there's uh, there's holes. It fills up with water, the wood itself is dried and drinks the water uh, very thoroughly, and the whole thing sinks as well. Yeah, um, and uh, so the uh, the guy 
just drowns. Yes, and he he is never seen to uh, grab the cask. So it's not that the cask failing drowns him. It's that he apparently is just gone from the minute he hits the water. Presumably because he fell like quite a long distance from the top of the masthead and hit the water and was knocked unconscious or something. Yeah, that seems very believable. Um, so yeah, and, and this is, uh, you know, the, the book emphasizes this is the first man of the Pequod that mounted the mast to look out for the white whale on the white whale's own peculiar ground. So this is... That con- man was swallowed up in the deep. Yes. You can't not finish that sentence. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, you know, um, the book kind of intimates this is a, a bad omen. But at the time, the way people interpret this is like, oh, that's what that horrible whale was about. That was warning us that this guy was going to die. And that is actually... It almost, like, relieves people's fears because now they feel like the the bad omen has come true and, and yeah. it's over. It's a fulfillment of an evil already presaged, not an omen of future evil. But, again, the old Manxman said nay. So the Manxman is like, no, that's not what any of this was about. Like, Yeah, no, those were newly drowned men in the sea. I know. I'm from man. Yeah. Uh... uh... I think it's fair to call him a reasonably major character. He shows up a lot. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, he, He's he, just not very personalized. Yes, I think that's fair. Um, <sighs> and uh, so, you know, now, practically speaking, they need to get a new life boy. Um, and uh, this is a Starbucks job. And they can't find any, like, cask on board that will do the trick. Yeah, and they, they really want one quickly. They don't want to have to, like go through the process of producing a whole cask or maybe even have to like you know find another ship and bar or something everyone wants to get to the work yes and, um, and, and in get fact to the whaling ground in fact people are so eager uh, to get going that there's even a sense of like ah, do we even need to bother with this like do let's... we really need a life-saving device on this ship that's about to fight the white whale <laughs> yeah like eh, whatever um, yeah, yeah like but uh what uh what ends up happening um as as Starbuck I guess, is on the verge of saying, like, ah, oh, okay, never yeah, mind. it's his job to see to it. Yeah. Queequeg, by certain strange signs and innuendos, Queequeg hinted a hint concerning his coffin. Which, like, God, I don't know what the... Queequeg was just kind of like, hmm, coffin? Like, I, I don't like, know... I'm what... imagining he was like, hmm, this is a, a life boy. That's, uh, that's it's about the, the size of one of those, like, uh burial boxes you have right you know yeah or, you know, i have one of those or maybe he just kind of significantly looked at it <laughs> oh yeah signs and innuendos quickway just like takes his coffin out and is like polishing it in view of uh <laughs> of starbuck or something like that but he clearly made it like an option and uh starbuck suddenly realizes what quickway intends and is like a life boy of a coffin cried starbuck starting yeah it, starbuck is like a little shocked and Stub is also a little bit, he calls it rather queer, and Flask is just kind of like, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> yeah, once again, Flask is uh, purely, like, concerned with the practicalities of things. It just, it functions. Yeah. Um, you know, Stub is like, huh, that's weird, like he is about basically everything. Yeah. And meanwhile, Starbuck is like, the symbolism, the meaning! I mean, you know, like, look, it is pretty fucking creepy. Yep, but bring it up, there's nothing else for it, said Starbuck. After a melancholy pause. Yeah. Um, God, I also love this next exchange. Yeah, so uh, uh, it, it's, uh, he, he tells the, the carpenter to do it. Um, yep. Uh, 
we could do this. Sure, I would. I would. I was actually love to do this. Uh, as long as the carpenter also gets to say the description of what the carpenter is doing. Yeah, sure. Do I'll you... be the carpenter. Yeah. yeah, sure. Rig it, carpenter. Do not look at me so. The coffin, I mean. Dost thou hear me? Rig it. And shall I nail down the lid, sir? Moving his hand as with a hammer. Aye. And shall I caulk the seams, sir? Moving his hand as with a caulking iron. Aye. And shall I then pay over the same with pitch, sir? Moving his hand as with a pitch pot. Away! What possesses thee to this? Make a life boy of the coffin and no more. Mr. Stubb, Mr. Flask, come forward with me. He goes off in a huff. The hole he can endure. At the parts he balks. Yeah, and it's basically like the the carpenter is insisting on making Starbuck explicitly lay out every step of turning the coffin into a life boy. And Starbuck is like, I don't want to think about this. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, I I want to be clear. I was also moving my hand as with a hammer, a caulking iron, and a pitch pot while uh, reading that because I felt it was necessary. Yeah. Um, God. <laughs> I also, know, I, I actually saw the Power Moby Dick annotation for this, which is basically, this reminds me of an old Jewish joke. <laughs> yes, the, the PowerMobyDick.com citation for At the Parts He Box is, this reminds me of the Kreplock joke. And, uh... The <laughs> you don't need to read Yeah, the no, Kreplock I'm not going to read the Kreplock joke. It's just a, a little, um, you know, it's it's a joke about a, a, a little boy who doesn't want to eat Kreplock and uh, how his mom tries to convince him to do it. Yeah, by specifically, she goes through every single part of it, and he's like, yeah, I'm fine with that part of the food. I'm fine with that part of the food. And when she finally, like, very visibly moves the one thing he's okay with into the other thing he's okay with, he goes, ah, Kreplock! <laughs> Anyways, it's it has nothing to do with Moby Dick. It's barely <laughs> connected to this sequence, but Power Moby Dick has such a powerful hold I, on I just... the reading of Moby Dick online our sponsor, PowerMobyDick.com, um, <laughs> that we had to tell the Kreplock joke, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret Guroff. Huh? All notes in Power Moby Dick, the online annotation, copyright 2008 by Margaret Guroff. Ah, so that is the uh, poor devil of a sub-sub we have to thank. Yeah. Thank you, Margaret. Um. <laughs> uh, though they, um, uh, they shall raise unsplinterable glasses to you in heaven, I believe is the line. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, now there's like a, a little uh, carpenter speech, um, mm -hmm. and he's he's just complaining the whole time. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's complaining specifically that like, oh, Captain Ahab's a gentleman. I make a leg for him and he wears it, but I make a coffin for Queequeg and he doesn't have the decency to die in it, and now <laughs> I have to make this into a life boy, which means re-going back to my own work and like turning it at, like, this is, like, he compares it to... Uh, turning out an old coat and like reversing it and reworking it, but it's never been worn. Yeah, and and uh, and he calls it cobbling, and I don't yes. really understand why he thinks it's cobbling. Like cobbling is making shoes. It is, but I think he also means like repairing shoes and putting shoes together from pieces. Mm, yeah. Well, anyway, he likes making things from the beginning, as he puts it. Uh, Let tinkers brats do tinkerings. We are their betters. I like to take in hand none but clean, virgin, fair and square mathematical jobs. Something that regularly begins at the beginning and is at the middle when midway, and comes to an end at the conclusion. Not a cobbler's job. That's at an end in the middle, and at the beginning at the end. And I think the meaning there is that a cobbler takes, like, an old shoe that has been, you know, that is at the end of its life, and remakes it. So when you reach the end of a shoe's life, it goes to the cobbler. The cobbler repairs it, and, uh... 
you know, um, I don't know what at an end in the middle means, though. So I might yeah. be misunderstanding. Yeah, but no, I, I mean, I think I think you're basically right that what he's objecting to here is going back to some work that he thought he had finished. Um, yes. And, uh, yeah. And this, this idea of rather than just building a new life buoy that he's going to have to, like, retrofit this one. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and he says that, you know, uh, this, he certainly is like, oh, this is weird. Some superstitious old carpenters now would be tied up in the rigging ere they would do the job. Uh, but I'm, I'm built different. Literally, I'm made of naughty Aristoc hemlock. So I'm made of extremely hard wood. Yep, I'm yep. built different. I don't budge. <laughs> So yes, uh, he's he's complaining constantly, but he'll totally do it because being a totally mechanical and with his quicksilver animus instead of a soul, uh, he'll just hammer away at it. He'll do it. Yep. Um, and and uh, he decides to make uh, thirty separate Turks-headed lifelines. Uh, Turks head being a, a knot. Yeah. Um, each three feet long, hanging all around the coffin. Uh, with the idea being that if they if, if they do throw this life boy overboard, no, if the hull go down, so if the ship sinks, oh yes, you're there'll right. be thirty lively fellows, so the entire crew all fighting for one coffin, a sight not seen very often beneath the sun. Like he thinks it's a fine joke that he'll make this such a good life boy that everyone can try and get on, and it'll be people fighting over a coffin, which. Sort of definitionally doesn't normally happen with the users of coffins. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, it's it's a very grim bit of humor. Um, and it's also definitely like, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like he is actively predicting that the ship will sink and everyone will be in need of a, no, no, a, no. Life, a life boy. But at the same time... He's totally, you know, that's what it's for, because, you know, he has this line also of, We workers in woods make bridal bedsteads and card tables, as well as coffins and hearses. We work by the month, or by the job, or by the profit. Not for us to ask the why and wherefore of our work, unless it be too confounded cobbling. And then we stash it if we can. Just literally saying, look, you could be doing this for death, marriage, birth, I don't care. It's all wood to me. It's all just stuff, and I work it. Yep. And I think that's why... Unlike, like, I think that's why the cobbler is this sort of demiurgic material, sorry, not the cobbler, the carpenter, he'd, he'd be so upset. Um, <laughs> the carpenter is this demiurgic, you know, figure because wood is plastic. It gets shaped into all these different things and reworked into all these things and is shaped, whereas the metal has to be forged, has to be heated, worked out. There are limits to how it can be changed and bent. So the metal becomes, you know, Ahab's soul and spirit, whereas the wood is Ahab's body. Mm, yeah, I think I get what you're saying. I think that there's an interesting little craft metaphor thing going on here with how wood is so plastic and uh, can be used for all these different things and carved to all these different works. It's the basic stuff that the world of the Pequod, the ship, is made of. Yeah, that's true. Um, <sighs> all right, ready uh, for the next one? Yep, yep, yep. 127, the deck. Uh, and uh, this is... Uh... This is basically just uh, Ahab, like, meeting up with the carpenter as he's working on this. Um, and here's a little, like, we, we see how, like, the, the Ahab-Pip relationship works now, where Ahab is coming out of his cabin, and uh, Pip is following him, uh, but he tells Pip to go back into the cabin. Um, and and uh, 
and Pip obeys him. Yep. Um, and he says, uh, not this hand, so not my own hand, complies with my humor more genially than that boy. So Pip is completely just, like, in Ahab's thrall. Yeah, it, it, it's, it almost seems like the situation is that Pip wants to go with Ahab and be wherever he is at all times. Um, and that's why he's, like, following yeah, him up yeah. from the cabin. Um, but then, you know, he is also, like, obedient to Ahab's will that he stay in the cabin. Yep, yep. Um, and now, uh, I believe Ahab come, Ahab has not before this realized that the coffin is going to become a life boy, because he comes on the carpenter and goes, what's this? Yeah, and, uh, you know, the, the carpenter explains it's, um, it's Starbucks orders, and, uh, there's, uh, you know, as, as this is another one of these, as I said, like these these Ahab dialogues where he's just uh, saying, running rings around someone. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, um, uh, and in fact, here's I was talking about the idea of like wood being plastic and all this direction. And this continues directly into this lovely little Ahab line. I feel like we should maybe say just because you've continuously used the word plastic, oh, people might be confused because oh, right. plastic is literally material. Yeah. When Ben says wood is plastic he means like wood can be reshaped because before plastic the material that we're all familiar with yeah, in our daily no, you're lives right, you're right. was invented the word plastic just meant as shapeable. an adjective shapeable manipulable the plastic arts are like sculpture woodworking everything that shapes things to a particular form so wood starts as this undifferentiated you know log and then it is shaped to various things and that's what i mean by plastic that it's yeah. wood can be shaped and the work of the carpenter is shaping wood, and it can be go, and the same wood can be shaped to all sorts of purposes. And in fact, Ahab complains with like, you know, as he looks at the the carpenter uh, working on the coffin. Um, Ahab says, "Then tell me, art thou not an errant, all grasping, intermeddling, monopolizing, heathenish old scamp?" To be one day making legs, and the next day coffins to clap them in, and yet again life boys out of the same coffins. Thou art as unprincipled as the gods, and as much of a jack of all trades. Uh, and and uh, the carpenter's response to all that is, but I do not mean anything, sir. I do as I do. The gods again. Yeah, which is just, I mean, this is one of those things, uh, I think the thing that is, like, entertaining about these exchanges yeah, yeah. that Ahab has, maybe especially with the carpenter, but, like, also the one he was having with the Manxman, yeah, yeah. is that... Uh, the responses that other people give to Ahab are at the same time just, like, normal people things to say. You know, I do yes. as I do is literally just like, look, this is my job, sir. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I do not mean anything. Like, I, I don't mean anything by it. I just do what I was ordered to do. Right, but at the same time, it is also, like, it does have a meaning yeah. that Ahab is noticing here, which is like, oh, so there's no meaning in what I do. I just perform my function yes that's what the gods are also. yeah and also that there's no like thought or morality to it it's just the the process of the production of the natural world it just happens it's amoral and you know the carpenter is amoral i think that's a defining quality of his yes no definitely um uh Ahab also um has this uh, asks the carpenter if he ever sings while he works because like the titans the primordial forces that shaped the world they um are supposed to have you know sung when uh chipping out the craters for volcanoes and the grave digger in the play sings spade in hand dost thou never yeah and that's an allusion to hamlet mm -hmm. um what uh yeah this thing about the titans singing i i don't think that um that is like a 
a known mythological thing. Although I have no idea. I mean, what it could be is a kind of like broad allusion to the idea of like the music of the spheres. Like there is an mm, idea that yeah, um, yeah. the that, that's that's very much more medieval than a Titanic thing. Yes, but, but my, my my point is that like there is a certain idea that like just the 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 basic existence of and like creation of creation makes a sound. Um, but I don't think the idea that the Titans sing is like. I don't think that's a, a, I think Ahab is kind of making that up in this moment. Mm-hmm. Whereas the gravedigger in the play sings, that's literally in Hamlet, there's a gravedigger who sings a song. Yep, yep. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the carpenter has, again, like a totally sort of practical response to this, which is, uh, and, and I, I think we can kind of assume from this that the grave dig, that the, the the carpenter doesn't know who, like what gravedigger Ahab is talking yes, about. Yes, yes. He just says, oh, well... The reason why the gravedigger made music must have been because there was none in his spade, but the caulking mallet is full of it. So he's basically being like, well, yeah, the, there isn't any music in the sound of a spade hitting earth, but as I'm hitting this coffin, there is like an audible ringing yeah. noise. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, because as they have points out that there's a, th- this is like a hollow wooden object. So yep, it's a sounding the board. A sounding board and- what in all things makes the sounding board is this. There's not beneath. Like, he's saying that the emptiness of a coffin is why there's music in it. Which, uh, that is, you know, that is how, like, the sounding board yep, of yep. a wooden instrument works. Like, that's why... Uh, Ahab's technical knowledge continuously allows him to, like, expand on these things. Because he finds meaning in these technical sophistications that are not even visible to the people he's talking to. Yes, uh, but... Uh, and he also implies the emptiness of the physical form and the body because he says a coffin with a body in it rings pretty much the same carpenter yeah so like uh uh just as much as a an empty coffin is like a, a space full of air that makes a sounding board even if it's literally got a body in it it's it's still the same thing it's still empty yes and uh because the body is not you know the body itself is empty it's unimportant yeah. At least that's the implication that seems very strong. Yeah, here. no, I think you're definitely right. And, and uh, you know, to, to, like, cite his description, he's like, hast thou ever helped carry a beer? Have you ever, like, carried a coffin and heard it knock against the churchyard? And <laughs> then this exchange. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the carpenter's like, a faith, sir. I'm just meaning, like, a... Faith? What's that? Yeah. Ahab's so just like, Ahab has, like, the intense, immediate reaction of, like, a, a mid-2000s internet atheist. <laughs> yes, when, like, the, you know, the carpenter is literally just saying, like, uh, jeez, dude. Yep, yep. And he says, why, faith, sir, it's only a sort of exclamation, like, that's all, sir. And <laughs> Ahab actually says, um, um, go up, like, like, hmm, hmm, go on. Makes you think, doesn't it? And faith co- is just an exclamation. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, <sighs> and then, you know, Ahab just kind of gets angry at him and tells him to finish up the job and leaves. Yep. Um, oh, God. I. And then, you know... Um, he goes aft. That was sudden now. But squalls come sudden in hot latitudes. I've heard that the Isle of Albemarle, one of the Galapagos, is cut by the equator right in the middle. Seems to me some sort of equator cuts young old man to right in the middle. He's always under the line. Fiery hot, I tell you. Yeah, so basically he's just, you know, reflecting on the fact that, like, Ahab has an awful temper. Yeah, and also I think that Ahab is, like, internally divided, which is why he can have that, like, sudden reaction where one part of Ahab comes to the fore and then another, or 
like things cross a line and he acts. And it's worth noting that Ahab literally from that lightning strike has a line that runs directly from his forehead to his heel. Yeah, that's true. He does he he does have a kind of equator. Yes. Um and uh you know then Ahab reflects on this conversation and he's you know as as usual he's saying like you know the, the carpenter has like no thoughts in his head. Yep. Um and uh and and this Leads him to kind of reflect on just, like, materiality. Yep. Oh, how immaterial are all materials. What things real are there but imponderable thoughts? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, part, part of this, I think, is, is that he's looking at the coffin made into a life preserver, and he's like, this has to mean yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. He's like, this has to mean something, and its meaning has to be more than just the physical object is being used as this. And he sort of muses about it. He's like... Does it go further? Can it be that in some spiritual sense, the coffin is, after all, but an immortality preserver? I'll think of that. But no, so far gone am I in the dark side of Earth that its other side, the theoretic bright one, seems but uncertain twilight to me. So he's like, yeah, there's maybe a symbolism here that could be, like, positive and friendly and make the world seem less awful. Therefore, I can't really make it out and I'm not going to bother. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's even, like... The idea that the coffin is an immortality preserver is definitely a suggestion that, you know, the uh, sort of proper, you know, means of burial and, and the kind of, like, usual way of... The churchyard, the ceremony, Christianity. That that is in some way that that makes you immortal. And Ahab is kind of thinking, like, oh, is it possible that man's immortal soul can be saved? Nah. <laughs> yeah, at least, or at the very least, he's not interested in that because... I think on some level there's also a bit where, like, hmm, is all this, like, death and horror within the world, like, somehow merely that gateway to a pleasant immortality that I have been, you know, told by Father Mackle, etc.? I don't think I want to think about that, because it just seems completely incomprehensible and bizarre, and comes from that theoretic bright side of the world where people insist on things being, like, good. Yeah, When but... I understand that they're all evil and material things the least material. Yeah, but I do think it's worth noting that although in this moment he's like, no, I'm not going to continue thinking about this, he does actually say that at the end of the chapter, Now then, Pip, we'll talk this over. I do suck most wondrous philosophies from thee. Some unknown conduits from the unknown worlds must empty into thee. And this is where, like, I said earlier that he was seeing mystery in Pip, but it actually seems like his... The beginning was just that he was sympathetic to Pip, but now yeah. that he's, like, spending time with Pip together in the cabin, he has realized that, like, Pip is constantly saying these things that mean weird, like, philosophical stuff. Yeah, um, I think, and I think that for some extent, Pip is just as unconcerned with the material world and is as consumed by symbols as Ahab, but in his case, it's a far more scattershot and, like, more more emotional and sentimental and even more positive version like okay ahab's is also intensely emotional just not sentimental is what mm. i meant ahab's is like angrily decomposing the world to understand its secrets so that he can wield them against god and pip is just like wandering around through the symbols finding them beautiful and terrifying at intervals yeah and and you know i think it's very like it's worth pointing out that like you know, Ahab is talking about, like, discoursing with Pip. He's like, we'll talk this over. But at the same time, you know, as, as I'm sure you heard when I quoted that sentence, he is kind of just talking about, like, 
like ideas flowing through pip yeah it's not that pip's mind is generating this like you know intense discourse it's that he can suck out of pip through pip like through pip's experience in madness you know after all pip saw god's foot on the treadle of the loom yes and and uh, yeah so there's no like Pip is ahab's spy in god's court yeah like there's there's no actual like knowledge in pip he's just this kind of like almost a tool for ahab mm-hmm. um yeah but but so you know he is interested he's a pump yeah geez but and so you know ahab does want to take this idea of the coffin life boy down to pip and see what pip makes of it yeah uh, and and uh we never actually see what that discourse what might what be. gnostic consultations and gnomic pronouncements ahab develops out of pip yeah god pip is almost like a like an oracle like the, the yeah. delphic oracle yeah know? at least ahab is treating him as such although it does it's unclear whether ahab thinks that pip is like directly accessing you know secret truths or more that pip has such a perspective you know a, a view of that theoretic bright side that ahab does not and yeah I think that's interesting yeah he just says unknown conduits from the unknown worlds and we really yes. don't know what those unknown worlds are and i think there's a lot of different possibilities yeah <sighs> but speaking of bright sides and dark sides yeah all right the next chapter the Pequod, 128 the pequod meets the rachel um so they meet another ship the rachel and uh uh, Rachel is just flying with full speed downwind, like all sails fit to burst. Yes, but when uh, when when they when the Rachel sights the Pequod, uh, she like suddenly lets all the sails go and like stops going so fast uh, to to meet with the Pequod. Yeah, yeah, blows sails, um, turns hard by, and the Manxman's like bad news. She brings bad news, but uh, you know, obviously Ahab is quick to jump in with, "Hast seen the white whale?" And the response is, I, yesterday, have ye seen a whaleboat adrift? And so, obviously, Ahab is eager to get to the other boat, or the other ship, as soon like, as possible. But the other captain is sooner. Yes. Like, the other captain, like, basically leaps down the side of the ship onto a boat, sails across, climbs up by basically, the, like, a chain that's on the side of the boat, and with a boat hook, and um, pulls himself up, recognizes Ahab, and neither of them has any, like, Hey, good to see you. There's no formal salutation. No. Ahab's immediately like, was the white whale killed? You know, not killed, not killed. How was it? And the other man has no interest in that. Uh, he'll get through Well, it. well, he does. He, oh, yeah, he does get, right. the, the other captain is very interested in telling the story of how they encountered Moby Dick, but not because he's interested in Moby Dick. Yes. Uh, because what he, the, the story that is explained of the, of what happened to the Rachel is that, uh, the previous day, um, Three of the boats were already hunting whales uh, fairly far from the ship, a couple miles away to windward. Yeah, that's nearly over the horizon, four or five miles, at least from the from the boats, not necessarily from the ship, which is a much longer... Yeah, longer and uh, and then suddenly Moby Dick shows up uh, on the, the leeward side, and so then another boat is sent out after him. Uh, but... That's the fourth boat that had been reserved. Yes, and, uh, the, the boat apparently manages to fasten because it's immediately pulled way off into the distance. Um, yeah. and, uh, far enough away that the, the ship can no longer see it. Um... In the distance he saw the diminished dotted boat, and then a swift gleam of bubbling white water, and after that nothing more. 
whence it was concluded that the stricken whale must have indefinitely run away with his pursuers, as often happens. Yeah, and so So this... Moby Dick has abducted this boat. Yeah, and this is certainly cause for some concern, but not, like, you know, this is not abnormal. This is mostly just, it's like, alright, this is a situation we're gonna have to deal with, but, like, nobody is super worried at this point. They, uh, they put up recall signals so flags that basically mean like okay all boats if you can see this come back yeah um and uh it gets dark and so the ship has to go pick up uh the three ships to windward yes um which means that they they do have to sail in the exact opposite direction of where that other ship is or other boat has gone um but you know they 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 sail for the other three ships they find them they they, get them they get everyone on board and then they uh she crowded all sail, stunsail and stunsail, after the missing boat. So going as fast as they can to go get the fourth boat. Yep. Um, setting a, a fire in the tripods as a, as a beacon. So they'll be visible. Everyone looking at, look on lookout. And I believe it's mentioned when we first see the Pequod, uh, when we first see the Rachel approaching the Pequod. Next day, a large ship, the Rachel, was descried, bearing directly down upon the Pequod, all her spars thickly clustering with men. So, like, every possible lookout spot up in the rigging is full of the sailors. Yes. Um, and, uh, but uh, they, they, they sail all night, and they get to the place where they uh, think that the other boat is going to be, and they don't find her. Uh, they lower the boats to search. Uh, they keep sailing and lower the boats again, and they just keep doing this all night, and they don't find the other boat. Um, and, uh, it turns out the other captain wants the Pequod to help search. Yes, um, he wants to, um, by having the two of them search together, um, being able to sweep the sea, like, within sight of each other, parallel, they'll be able to cover a much larger region of the water. Yeah, and, and, uh, Stubb hearing all this is like, oh, I get it. There must have been something really, like, worth a lot of money to the captain on that boat. It was probably his best coat or, oh, maybe his watch, because, like... Why else would two whale ships go after one missing whale boat in the middle of the season on the line? Um, yep. And, uh, uh, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, he looks so worried. It has to have been the watch. And then the captain explains, uh, my boy, my own boy is among them. So he's he's trying to find his son. Yes, his son was on the fourth uh, whale boat. And now he's desperately pursuing him. And, you know... Um, he begs Ahab, and, and he, he offers to, not, not just, he doesn't just beg him, but he offers to charter the Pequod. So he's offering yeah, yeah. To, to pay for the Pequod's time. And pay quite a lot for just 48 hours of searching the ocean, desperately trying to find this uh, boat. Yes, and, uh, and, and and this tugs at Stubbs' heartstrings, you know? He's, he's like, oh, we have to, we must yeah, save that Yeah, he says, boy. I take back the coat and watch. What says Ahab? We must save that boy. And... The old Manx sailor is like, they all drowned last night. We heard their spirit. So yeah. the Manxman's like, no, this is, Moby Dick took them to a watery grave. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it turns out that uh, not only has the captain, you know, lost one of his sons in this missing fourth whaleboat, but actually one of his other sons was in one of the other three boats, which means that at the moment that the the Rachel had to decide which direction to go to recover the boats, mm-hmm. the captain was in the position of deciding which of his sons to save. Yes. Uh, and the only way that the decision was made was that the, the first mate was like, well, the normal, the standard procedure in these situations is to go after the majority 
of, of the, the crew. Yeah. yeah so, and so there's three boats in one direction, one in the other. We have to go that way. But it clearly still just destroyed the captain to feel he had chosen one son over the other. Yeah. And, and he doesn't mention all this until, like, he is sort of brought to the point of having to because Ahab is unmoved. Yeah, Ahab um, is... Ahab is just icily, like, regarding him with no reaction. And so he's piling on these details to make it clear how tragic the situation is. And it really is tragic. Yeah, and, and uh, the, there's a bit of an explanation that, you know, this is a, a little 12-year-old boy. And, and this is not totally abnormal that, like, a, a Nantucket whaling family might, might send its sons to sea early to kind of, you yeah. know, accustom them to this With life. With the earnest but unmisgiving hardihood of an Nantucketer's paternal love, had thus early sought to initiate him in the perils and wonders of a vocation, almost immemorially the destiny of all his race, that being the Nantucketers. Yeah, and, and in this particular case is actually somewhat more, like, uh, gentle than what often happens, which is that they'll often send their sons off with, like, other captains, other that captains. they trust, presumably. But... Yeah, but but rather than, because the idea being that if a captain takes his own son to sea, then he will be, you know, he, he'll he'll want to take care of him, and he'll be yeah, partial yeah, towards and him. protect him. And, and that will make him weak. Yes, whereas here, not doing that has maybe made him dead. Yeah, um, and uh, so, you know, he's, he's begging Ahab desperately, and Ahab still stood like an anvil, receiving every shock, but without the least quivering of his own. Yeah, and and uh, at this point, the the other captain makes a makes a plea based on the fact that he and Ahab actually know each other, yeah. like know each other quite well, because they're both Nantucket whale captains. Um, and so he says, uh, you know, I will not go till you say I to me. Do to me as you would have me do to you in the like case. For you too have a boy, Captain Ahab, though but a child and nestling safely at home now, a child of your old age too. Yes, yes, you relent. I see it. Run, run, men now, and stand by to square in the yards. And he just, he assumes that based on their, like, their shared humanity, their shared Christianity, because he's referring to the golden rule, yeah. their shared fatherhood, their shared, uh, uh, you know, origin as, as Nantucketers, he thinks Ahab is going to do what he wants because they, they are so similar, yeah, and yet... And Ahab does not. Ahab yells, Avast! Touch not a rope yarn! Then in a voice that prolongingly molded every word, Captain Gardiner, I will not do it. Even now I lose time. Goodbye, goodbye. God bless ye, man, and may I forgive myself, but I must go. Yeah, and this is the first time in the chapter that we learn the other captain's name. So Ahab yeah. doesn't acknowledge the fact that he knows this person personally until, like, the utmost moment where he is rejecting his desperate plea. Yeah, and the, you know, he, he says, you know, Mr. Starbuck, you know, he, he gives his orders and then he goes below. Like, he... Turn, hurriedly turning with averted face, he descended into his cabin. You know, this clearly is not an easy decision for Ahab, but it is one he makes. You know, he says, may I forgive myself, but I must go. His his quest against Moby Dick is so fundamental and so necessary to him that he is willing to spurn even this most straight... Like, this isn't just such a fundamental moral claim it is also literally an injury done by moby dick yes. that he could attempt to redress but it is not redress that he's pursuing but vengeance yes absolutely yeah um and oh 
God. Gardener just says nothing else. He leaves, more fell than stepped into his boat and returned to his ship. And then as they sail off, they can see the Rachel piling up its sails, but constantly turning this way and that so it travels slowly across the ocean because it's desperately looking out for some dark spot on the horizon or some sign of the boat. Yeah, and because the boat is like, uh, it's like tacking, right? Tacking constantly. Because of that, uh, by her still halting course and winding woeful way, you plainly saw that this ship that's so wept with spray, like it's constantly, there's spray coming up on the sides because of the way it's moving, still remained without comfort. Comfort. She was Rachel, weeping for her children because they were not. Um, and this is, uh, this is a, a biblical illusion. Um, Specifically, it's, it's, um, one of the patriarchs of Israel. Well, one of the or, matriarchs. Matriarch, yes, one of the matriarchs of Israel, sorry. Yeah. It's one of the stories connected to the patriarchs of Israel. Yeah, so, so this is, this is an interesting illusion because it's one of those parts of, like, um, you know, uh, uh, like, biblical prophecy that gets taken up by the new testament Mm. um so rachel weeping for her children is in jeremiah um and it's you know in in jeremiah rachel is long dead and is weeping for her children uh the jewish people in exile Mm -hmm. um but then uh matthew interprets this passage just reading from powermobydick.com the gospel of matthew interprets this passage as a foretelling of king herod's slaughter of the innocents mm, which so, connects to that previous reference a couple chapters ago exactly so so the idea is like if the the wailing of the if the wailing that was heard was in some sense like the the cries of the slaughtered innocents this is the ship that is crying for those slaughtered yeah. innocents um so yeah yeah no it's it's grim <sighs> see i completely missed the uh, jeremiah reference because i just looked up like the specific events of rachel's life mm. where uh her initial weeping is because um she uh can't conceive there's a whole yes. thing about uh yeah that's certainly... so because they were not is what stood out to me there yeah but... no you're definitely right there is a there's a multi multiple layers of like biblical passages referring to earlier biblical passages like i yes. think the the figure of rachel weeping for her like descendants in jeremiah is also i think yeah a reference to rachel weeping during her lifetime yes um uh because she doesn't have children at that time um but throughout the um throughout the usage in both you know the uh original uh, jewish tradition and the christian sort of absorption of this rachel is weeping for children yes that's that's fundamental yeah um (sighs) anyways it's really sad it is this this is one of captain ahab's most like straightforwardly cruel and inhuman moments yeah um yeah god i think especially because like at this time and, and this is not directly mentioned in this chapter but i think the fact that uh Ahab is that Ahab goes like back to his cabin here. I think the idea is a little bit present. This is a moment when Ahab has been feeling a deep sympathy for a drowned child. Yeah. Right? Like that's what's yeah. going on with him and Pip. Mm-hmm. And yet he and I think maybe that has something to do with the fact that he does seem 
to feel how like he he is aware he is that, not insensible to it yeah he is aware that the decision he's making here is a is a cruel one yes um but god bless you ma'am and may i forgive myself and i think there's an implication there that obviously you're not going to forgive me and also god is not going to forgive yes. me but um, I don't think he cares as much about God's opinion as Captain Gardner's in a certain sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that, yeah, I think that there's an element here where Ahab is perfectly fine with the fact that this is, like, a monstrous action in the eyes of God and his religion, but it matters more to him that this is a monstrous action in the eyes of himself. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Shall we uh, move on? Chapter yep. 129? Uh, you were just talking about Pip in the cabin, and yeah. this is the cabin. Ahab moving to go on deck. Pip catches him by the hand to follow. Yeah, so so this is, again, like, Ahab's leaving the cabin where Pip is, and Pip's trying to follow him. And, uh, again, Ahab makes him stay in the cabin. Um, specifically, Ahab's reason for this at this point is, like... Uh, basically that he can't well, what he says is the hour is coming when ahab would not scare thee from him yet would not have thee by him yeah it's it's basically i think that i mean i'll just again read the lines there is that in thee poor lad which i feel too curing to my malady like cures like and for this hunt my malady becomes my most desired health so it's like by being around pip Ahab's madness his monomania is actually being relieved he's he's yeah. feeling less uh mad less mad less intent on his revenge and because of that he's like all right i actually can't be around you like i i need that madness yes and there's also this interesting thing where he says uh i would not scare thee from me but yet would not have thee by me where he's saying like i don't want to chase you away from me or like harm you but also if you're with me, it's going to be a problem. So the answer to this is to preemptively have you wait here, and therefore I don't have to chase you off, and also you can't turn my intention. Yes, and uh, and he 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 tells uh, Pip to stay in the cabin, like in the captain's chair. Yes, um, and uh, and Pip Pip begs to be allowed to go with Ahab, even if it would mean like being the leg that he walks yeah. on ye have not a whole body sir do ye but use poor me for your one lost leg only tread upon me sir i ask no more so i remain a part of ye and i think it's interesting that this is like this is an offer to replace the thing that ahab has lost it is an offer to recover his injury yes but it is also like an offer to be like subservient yes yeah, and like, like like a tool literally walked on yeah um, uh, yeah but yeah um and, uh... But Ahab... Ahab responds to that offer with, like, you know, this is, like, this is exactly the thing that I both need and cannot have. Yeah, like, he's he's realizing, like, yeah, this is... Uh... This next line is very weird because it's using the word bigot, but in a, in the way that it was used in the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. Spite of million vill villains, this makes me a bigot in the fadeless fidelity of man. Which means, in spite of a million villains, even though there are so many evil people in the world, this makes me a bigot by which he means, like, a, a fanatic. Someone who's yes. devoted to an idea. Yeah, someone who is unwilling to countenance the opposite and is unwilling to... Um... And is, like, completely unwilling to... Like, it's a religious 
uh, partisan. A zealot. Zealot. That's a perfect yeah. word for it. So yeah. this this makes me a, a zealot in the fadeless fidelity of man. Meaning, like now I I believe passionately that that in in fidelity humanity is good. Yeah, humanity is loyal to each other. Yes. Like because Pip is like this, I am realizing that like people care about each other. Yeah, and and even he's I think also saying that like you know I. I will argue for and fight for the, you know, that humans need to, you know, stand by each other, that there is this value in humanity that must be seen. Having just turned down Gardner's plea. Yes. And also is rejecting Pip right now. Yes. You know? um, and of course there's like this thing we've been repeating all along where like Pip's race and his madness make him kind of the lowest of the low. Yes. Ahab basically repeats that here. Um, but he says, but methinks like cures like applies to him too. He grows so sane again. Like, Pip by having someone who's actually talking to him and res- and like treating him as a person and like is even not like is willing to countenance his sense of like what has happened to him and you know is making him more like stable and able to deal with things again it's like huh really really yeah. you say yeah you don't say yeah no i human I... connection is causing both of you to become less destroyed by moby dick fascinating also time to stop doing that because you need to go kill a whale yeah like i definitely think there is a, a deep tragedy here where it's like if only a weren't rejecting this human connection with pip like maybe it would be better for both of them and maybe no one else would have to die question mark in the pursuit of this whale but but yeah look i i am strongly of the opinion that moby dick needs to die but also oh god yeah and uh like, like that's why this is so compelling is that you can feel ahab's vendetta and the meaning of it and the importance of it to him but you can also see how he is being drawn away from it by all that is good in the world yes and, and which and, he uh, finds in people yeah and, and and pip pip also like he he alludes to his own you know death and says uh that you know they tell me sir that stub did once desert poor little pip uh and, and says that he won't desert Ahab. And, uh... And Ahab says, If thou speakest thus to me much more, Ahab's purpose keels up in him. Like, you'll you'll capsize Ahab's purpose. You'll destroy it. Yes. So, like, he, he's just like, I can't listen to you saying such, like, sympathetic, sad, like, kind things to me, or I will be turned away from my purpose. And, uh... And, you know, uh... Pip calls him master. Which yeah, is like, uh, yeah. But also, you know, we can assume from the way Ahab, Ahab responds that he's crying. Yeah. And, and Ahab says, weep so and I will murder thee. Basically, like... Well, finish that sentence. Have a care for Ahab too is mad. So basically, like, Ahab is saying, like, at this point, because you are making me feel like, you know, human feelings so much, like, if you do stay around me, I'm going to have to kill you. Or, yeah. or even, like, maybe not so much going to have to as if it's, like, a, a practical plan and more, like, I know that at some point I will fly into a rage and kill you. Like, I won't or be like, able to stop myself. I definitely got the sense that this is, like... I mean, because when Ahab flies into a rage, it's generally in pursuit of his purpose. And I think yeah. there's the sense of, like, if you do this, you are going to turn me away from the hunt and I will kill you to prevent that. Yes, I... I yeah, but, but I think there's a... Yeah, um... And so, you know, they, they have this, like, parting. They take hands again. Um, and and uh, uh, Ahab, like, 
calls for God to bless and save Pip. Yep. He says, and if it come to that, uh, and like, it's, this is Ahab, like the furthest Ahab is willing to go is to actually like invoke God and like, you know, I mean, I get the sense of like, look, God, this is one of yours. You owe it. You owe him. Take care of him. Yeah. Like, because Ahab does not personally ask for God's blessing or support himself. He's turned away from that. He's at war with God. Yeah. But he owns that, you know, placeless, voiceless power and is willing to ask on behalf of someone else. Yes. And uh, Ahab goes. There's stage directions here again. Ahab goes. Pip steps one step forward. Um, and uh, then Pip has, uh, you know, a, a, soliloquy. a speech. And, uh, he, you know, he's, uh... Distraught? Yeah. Oh, I, one thing, right, I almost forgot to mention, but I think this is good, is, uh, when Ahab is, is leaving Pip, he says, uh, listen, and thou wilt often hear my ivory foot upon the deck and still know that I am there. And so, like, he's kind of offering that as, like, cold comfort. It's like, yeah, you'll, yeah. you'll hear the sound of our, of my ivory heel, and by that you'll know I'm still here. But, yeah. uh, that is really not something that pip finds uh like comforting no especially given that pip sort of offered to replace that ivory leg yes and and i think that uh yeah like uh you know this is at the end of of pip's speech but i don't feel so bad for skipping around in it because it's so pip yeah disjointed um but he says uh I am indeed downhearted when you walk over me. So, in fact, it, the idea that he can hear Ahab's heel is exactly opposite. It, 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 yeah. It discourages him rather than giving Encouraging him. him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, he also, you know, touches on um, yeah, he tries a to, lot of things. Yeah, there, there's a very interesting thing. He, he tries to open the door and finds that he can't, even though it is not locked. Uh, and... Yeah, I... I think this is Pitt being like, uh, I want to open the door. I can put my hand on it, but I'm not willing to disobey. So I can't open it. I mean, in a certain sense, yes. But I like, I mean, the way he interprets it is it must be the spell. He told me to stay here. And I think that it, there's a certain sense in which because Pip is so loyal to Ahab now and has been told to stay in the cabin, he's not capable of opening the mm, door. And because he's so dissociated, he's not necessarily like thinking even in terms of no, I really shouldn't. He's just experiencing this as an unwillingness or an inability. Yeah, like his body won't open the door, and and that's something that he doesn't like understand. Yeah. Um, and uh, like, um, yeah, something that I think is truly upsetting about this. Yeah. Is like okay, well, as we'll hear in the next chapter, Ahab doesn't return to the cabin after this. Yeah. I think Pip stays in this cabin for the rest of the book, maybe? Well, we'll see if he shows up on deck again, but he certainly, at least for through the next chapter, yes. Ahab is on deck and Pip is below, and the two of them are not in contact. Yes. Ahab has succeeded at quarantining away the person in the crew who could successfully convince him to maybe turn aside. Yeah. Or at the very least, quarantine the one who is causing him to think that. Yeah, and, and uh... Pip does kind of reflect on this idea that he's, like, he's in the captain's chair. He's, like, in the spot where, you know, all kinds of, like, great admirals uh, might sit here. Um, and so he's, like, pretending that he's having a party with them and then asking all of them, Oh, have you seen Pip? Yep, um, yep. And, uh, <sighs> yeah, but, uh... Also, you know, let's... 
Fill up again, captains. Let's drink shame upon all cowards. I name no names. Shame upon them. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, but, um, Pip, you know, swears to stay in the cabin even if the ship, uh, sinks, sinks and, yep. and oysters come to join me. Yep, yep. And if, you know, if the, specifically if the ship, if the stern strikes rocks and they bulge through and oysters come to join me, like the, the ship is literally torn apart by its crashing. Yeah. I do also, there's one turn of phrase that Ahab uses in this chapter as well I want to go back to, which is, true art thou, lad, as the circumference to its center. Like, Pip's uh, entirely, like, it's, Pip is both marginal, but entirely, like, like, mathematically loyal, fully defined by his relationship to Ahab in Ahab's speech. Yeah, he has a, he has a perfect orbit of Ahab. Yes. Uh, and there's also... There's a little bit of an implication here that I think is interesting, which is when he says, I name no names, shame upon them. Obviously, he's not, he can't be talking about, you know, Pip there, because he's already said Pip is a coward who jumped from a whaleboat. So that name is named. I think there's an implication also of a certain cowardice in Ahab, that he's mm. unwilling to face Pip and, you know, has to, you know, for his own ability to function, keep Pip down in the cabin. Yeah. I don't think Pip is like, fully cognizant or willing to admit to this he does you know in his own soliloquy sort of hide it from himself but i think there's that yeah no i i think you're right i do think that in some sense ahab is a coward here um <laughs> yeah <sighs> and then there's chapter 130 the hat yes very very ominous chapter yeah i I think it's really funny that the chapter titled The Hat is one of the most intense that we could have. Yeah. Um, so, so they are, you know, the, the, the beginning of this chapter, as I think, as a number of beginnings of chapters have emphasized recently, uh, the beginning of this chapter is, is really emphasizing that they're so close um, that they've, uh, you know, they, uh, they're in the place where Mo Moby Dick is probably going to be found and... Uh, they, they're in almost the place where Ahab lost his leg and they've just spoken to a ship that saw Moby Dick. Um, yep, yep. And, uh... And now that all his successive meetings with various ships contrastingly concurred to show the demoniac indifference with which the white whale tore his hunters, whether sinning or sinned against. I really like F that Finish line. the sentence. Sorry, sorry. Uh, now it was that there lurked a something in the old man's eyes, which was hardly sufferable for feeble souls to see, as the unsetting polar star which through the livelong Arctic six months' night sustains its piercing, steady, central gaze, so Ahab's purpose now fixedly gleamed down upon the constant midnight of the gloomy crew. So Ahab is now resplendent in his vengeance. He is utterly unmasked. Like, the oath was the first, but at this point no one can even pretend that they are not sailing for Moby Dick at all times constantly. This is, this is to some extent, everything stripped of its illusions and its normalcy, and Ahab has become totally visible to all. And the fact that he doesn't return to his cabin is a big part of that as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, this kind of, like, chills everyone's, like, normal uh like emotional state it's a yeah all humor forced or natural vanished and i what's meant by that is not just like like humor like good humor but but all emotion all emotion yeah you should read this the rest S of it 
Stubb no more strove to raise a smile, Starbuck no more strove to check one. Alike joy and sorrow, hope and fear seemed ground to finest dust, and powdered for the time in the clamped mortar of Ahab's iron soul. Like machines, they dumbly moved about the deck, ever conscious that the old man's despot eye was on them. So everyone, all of their emotions and all of their, like, perspectives have just become fuel for Ahab. Yeah, they've been crushed beneath him. And there's this also comparison of, like, his gaze, uh, ra- like, shining down on them, like, hides all of their own bodings, doubts, misgivings, fears, were fain to hide beneath their souls and not to sprout forth a single spear or leaf. So anything someone else might think about, like, maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe this is a terrible idea. Maybe we should have helped the Rachel. All of that is completely unable to be expressed because it would be expressed within the withering gaze of Ahab. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there is something, much as, like, no one else can can meet Ahab's gaze, uh, Ahab can't meet Fidala's. Um, and, uh, th- there's, there's some way in which, like, Fidala is also kind of transforming and, and maybe, like, revealing his true nature in this moment where he seems to be like a living shadow. Yes, he's he's trem- he's trembling. There's like this intense spiritual air about him. Yeah, he is literally uh, ceaseless shudderings shook him. Yes. So he's 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 shaking. Yep. The men looked dubious at him, half uncertain as it seemed whether indeed he were a mortal substance or else a tremulous shadow cast upon the deck by some unbeing unseen being's body. So Fidala is like the shadow of God. And he's always visible on deck which is not actually like this is that this actually is not exactly new fidala has never slept or has certainly been had never certainly been known to slumber um or at least not by night he would just sort of sometimes you just couldn't find him is the impression i get but he was ne- no one ever found him sleeping yeah and uh um you know, his uh, his eyes remained uh, constantly open now, um, and he'll just stand on deck for hours and his eyes like two watchmen. So he and Ahab are engaged in something? Psychic warfare? Yeah, it's, oh, it's a lot. And, and it's, they, they are kind of like, yeah, um, you know, uh, now at this point, you know, Ahab is constantly on deck. He, uh, he, he is, it, it's, it's possible that Ahab is sleeping, but no one can ever really tell because he's got his, like, hat leaning over his eyes. So it's like, you can't really tell if he shut his eyes for an hour or if he was just kind of watching you intently that whole time. Yep, yep. And he, because he has his, um, uh, pivot hole for his leg he could be sleeping standing with that support yes exactly um, um and, and uh, he's described as being like a statue yes um and uh he doesn't he doesn't enter the cabin at all yeah he went no more beneath the planks whatever he wanted from the cabin that thing he sent for so i i think like yeah very clearly he he is ahab does not enter the cabin and pip does not leave it yes um uh and Ahab has become this, you know, unspeaking statue. Everyone knows his purpose and what he pursues. And also, uh, he's following his oath. Because remember, he swore he would not sup, nor shave, nor 
prey. Nor prey. So that that last one's kind of a gimme, but... uh... Yeah, an interesting thing about this. So I, when we read those oaths, was like, Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. Ahab is going to fast until he catches Moby Dick. Well, it was a little more technical than that. Yeah, and my suggestion was that he was, uh, he was only, he was going to not dine with his mates. He wasn't going to have, like, the formal supper. Yes, and so what, what it turns out is he ate in the same open air. That is, his only, his two only meals, breakfast and dinner, supper he never touched. So, I was totally wrong about the fasting. Ben was kind of right because he Thank you. Well, yeah, he's he because he's not going to the cabin. He yes. is at no point having like the kind of yeah, as you say, the formal He's no longer pursuing those forms of obedience and practice that previously helped maintain his like influence and power in the ship. Right. He's only eating on deck in the way that like the common sailors do. But also specifically he's not eating supper. Yes. He's not supping. Yep, yep. <laughs> and he also uh he does not reap his beard, which darkly grew all gnarled as unearthed roots of trees blown over, which still grow idly on at naked base, though perished in the upper verdure. So his you know, his beard is becoming shaggy and grown out. Uh, he eats only on deck. He's constantly standing and watching. Uh, though his whole life was now become one watch on deck. And though the Parsee's mystic watch was without intermission as his own, yet these two never seemed to speak, one man to the other, unless at long intervals some passing, unmomentous matter made it necessary. So there's just this, in, like you said, this psychic warfare, this intense transmission that seems between the two of them... Yeah, they, but they only ever talk to be like you know, uh, you know, belay that line or something. Yeah, and and, and they they are like um, they they are like the kind of like two opposite poles of the ship, um, and uh, <sighs> yeah, um, and all night neither speaks. Yes, um, and uh, it, there is uh, the, the 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 comparison made here is that it's almost as though. Like, we've compared Fadala to a shadow. Of some unseen being's body. And now Ahab is compared to the the thing that throws the shadow. As if in the Parsi, Ahab saw his forethrown shadow. In Ahab, the Parsi, his abandoned substance. Um, so. Yep. So the, um, you know, there's, there's this intense, uh, you know, um, this intense sort of binary and connection. And I'll note that uh, Fadala is by the mainmast, which is where the doubloon is uh, hammered and where Ahab sort of strove against the lightning. Yes. And that forms one of the poles. Uh, However, and so it seems, despite the fact that they're both just standing totally frozen and like, you know, um, just standing on deck constantly and barely speaking to each other, it seems to the crew that Ahab is, like, the master here, the domineering one, the lord and the Parsi, uh, his servant. And um, then also they both seem, quote, yoked together and an unseen tyrant driving them, the lean shade siding the solid rib. For be this Parsi what he may, all rib and keel was solid Ahab. So, again, we've got this this connection between this uh, personification of the boat as Ahab's body. Yes. So there's this, like, intense, you, you know, I, I, keep, I keep using the word intense, but it really is. There's this dynamic between them that at the same time Ahab is overpowering Fadala, Fadala and Ahab are joined in some task uh, that is driven by some other entity, perhaps the white whale. Yeah. Or perhaps God or perhaps both. Yeah. And, <sighs> uh, 
you know, Ahab is uh, constantly um, calling for everyone to, like, keep their eyes open for the white whale. Um, con- you know, giving the order to man the mastheads at the very beginning of dawn. Um, but uh, a few days pass after they meet the Rachel and they don't see any sign of the white whale. And Ahab starts to suspect that people are hiding uh signs of the whale from yeah him. that they would see the white whale and not call it out especially stub and flask and starbuck yeah um well yeah no he's 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 doubting everyone except uh, the pagan harpooners yes and and the the specific mention of stub and flask is that i i think the idea is that those two are it's particularly incredible that he doubts them mm. uh, he seemed to doubt even whether stub and flask might not willingly overlook the site he sought whereas I, starbuck obviously would yeah <laughs> i think i think it's an interesting suggestion that like stub and flask as his mates it's amazing that he doubts them but there's no need to mention that he doubts starbuck because on some level of starbuck's course he does. been yeah, yeah um uh and so he he ends up deciding that he himself is going to keep basically going to uh keep a masthead to watch himself from up up on the mast the way he says it is i will have the first sight of the whale myself i ahab must have the doubloon yeah and so he builds literally he himself builds um like a a sort of nest of ropes that he can stand in a a sling basically or a, a or a like um swing that he can go up be like hauled aloft by a line because he can't climb the mast with his uh leg yeah and and he has um you know he has a a pulley block uh sent up into the mast and uh uh you know sets it up so that he can be uh pulled aloft and um now he's in this position which is not fully explained in this paragraph but i think is actually very easy to understand if you even have the most basic idea of how a pulley works right and this is a uh compared to a lot of the rigging on this boat this is actually like a very simple system it's just it's just a at one end of the rope is this little basket contrivance swing for ahab to stand in it goes up to a pulley but yes uh i think he's described as standing huh um but anyway um, and then it goes up to a pulley, and then there's a rope at the other end, and someone is going to have to hold that rope. Well, it's not quite hold it. The pulley can be tied down, but because ropes are constantly being released and tied down, lines are being used on a ship, you need someone to stand by it and ensure that nobody uncleats it, lets go, and Ahab immediately falls into the ocean. Yeah, so that's that's right. He, he doesn't actually literally need someone to hold it in their hand constantly, but someone needs to man this rope. Yes. Um, and... He looks around the crew. Considers the harpooners. Yeah. Does not consider Fadala at all. And then he picks Starbuck to take to take on this duty. Um, yes. And, uh, yeah, he has Starbuck hoist him into the air and Starbuck uh, secure the rope and stand by it to, you know. Prevent him falling. And it's stated, you know, it's, it's noticed that... Starbuck is clearly not someone he trusted as a lookout. Starbuck is, um, or rather, it's not, it's not clear. This, whether or not he actually doubts his mates is left slightly ambiguous. You know, it was strange. Uh, you know, one of those two's faithfulness on the lookout, he had seemed to doubt somewhat, is what the, is what the actual, like, text says. But the, the only strange thing for the, um, the crew is that 
Starbuck is the one he trusts like this, that this was the very man he should select for his watchman, freely giving his whole life into such an otherwise distrusted person's hands. And you know, given the the bit where Starbuck was considering shooting him? Yeah, no, it is it is a fascinating decision. It's um either he is completely confident in his power over Starbuck, the magnet at his brain, or he is completely confident that Starbuck is a good Christian man who would never murder his captain. Or he's kind of testing him. I uh, guess, like, this could be a, you know, lather and nothing more kind of situation. Yeah. You know that short story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've talked about it before on this podcast. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, no, I, it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting occurrence. Um, it's hard to say what exactly Ahab is thinking here, as so mm-hmm. often. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and the first time he goes up aloft, we get the actual events of the hat. Yes. So uh, Ahab is, uh, I think maybe I was reading, you know, you're right. I, I'm not sure it actually does say that he's standing. I think I read uh, the first time Ahab was perched aloft, and in my mm. head I was picturing him standing up. But you're right, he could be I sitting. I definitely think of perching as like sitting in a slightly awkward fashion. Yeah, anyhow. I do that. He's he's up in this contrivance, whatever exactly is going on there, and uh, a uh, a seahawk flies over him, and oh, good, there's an illustration of that. Yeah, yeah, we need uh, to post that. And uh, uh, seizes his hat and flies off with it. Um, and this is a uh, this is like a uh, thing that happened to a a ancient Roman king. And it's specifically Tarkin. Yeah. Tar- like, so, an evil king. Yeah, well, uh, I, I think you may be confusing Tarquin I with think, a different Tarquin. I think that the use of a Tarquin here is going to connect to the use of, like, names of evil kings that have shown up with Ahab quite often. I, don't I mean, think- this, is, this is fair, but there's a, there's a specific Tarquin who is, like, uh, kind of a, like, um... Uh, what what's the word like? Kind of a, um, like the you're thinking maybe of the rape of Lucretia. Yes, but and this is not that Tarquin. All of the Roman kings are generally remembered as bad, like Roman. Yeah, the Romans rejected kingship. It's a big deal, and yes, it's because of the one specifically bad Tarquin. Tarquin. But I mean the the thing that I'm thinking about here is that the specific omen that happened with this Tarquin is that a a. An eagle stole his hat and then replaced it. And that was considered like an omen, like a a good omen. Yes, for him becoming king, because he's literally been crowned, like had a thing put on his head by the symbol of Rome. Yes. Uh, whereas what, what happens with Ahab is that he just loses it. Yes, oh. the specifically his... Uh, had is stolen and the way Ishmael talks about it is you know this was seen as an omen by his wife that he would become king of Rome but that was only because the eagle replaced it in this case Ahab's hat is stolen and then the eagle fly the or seahawk flies off in this instance and in the distance they can just barely see a dark spot dropping from the bird to the water so the bird flies out far across the water and then drops Ahab's hat yep but I I think this is definitely part of Ahab's, like, evil king symbolism, where kings and, like, you know, he has the name of a bad king from the Bible, and he has, you know, here he's being directly synonymized with a Roman king from that lineage that is most famously awful, even if his, the omen is not victory, he still has this sort of dark regality 
Yeah. Yeah, this is fair. I, 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 I feel like the exact, like, um, kind of moral weight of this particular Tarquin as a, as a symbol is, I, I'm not as convinced that you, as you are, that he's like an objectively evil king, the way that Ahab is presented in the Bible, but I don't really feel the need to argue the point. He's certainly, uh, certainly not like a, um, not necessarily like an inherently admirable figure, you know. Yeah. Like I, your your point that like the that Rome rejected kingship is is certainly I I, I take that point. Yes. Yeah, and generally speaking, where kings appear in this text, it's they're they're bad. There's very few good kings in this text. Yeah, like maybe Queequeg's like uh, family. Yeah, that's fair. But no, you're right. There isn't a. We don't get. I mean, there's like some allusions to Solomon at some times, but but no, I, I get what you're saying. Um. Also, there's this bit where this hawk is like flying around Ahab a bunch, and Ahab's just not even noticing it because he's too busy staring out after the whale. Yeah, he doesn't notice that the bird has taken his hat until uh, someone else, the Sicilian seaman specifically, I mm-hmm. guess, if that matters, uh, spots that this has happened and calls out, your hat, your hat, sir. Well, that was before he'd had it stolen. That was just as he was about to be stolen. Um, that's when the hawk seizes the um, seizes the hat as the Sicilian's like, wait, that's what it's going for. And then Ahab doesn't seem particularly influenced by it. Yeah. But yes, we end with an eagle flew thrice round Tarquin's head, removing his cap to replace it, and thereby Tanaquil, his wife, declared that Tarquin would be king of Rome, but only by replacing of the cap was that omen accounted good. Ahab's hat was never restored. Yeah. So yeah, um, Ahab has been, in a certain sense, decrowned. Yes, he has been... He has been omened. He is, uh, and he is at this moment like this tyrant of the entire ship. He is this absolutely oppressive force that nothing can withstand. Nothing can even exist except Ahab's intense will. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, that's that's the hat, a totally reasonable and normal name for a chapter that is mostly about the way Ahab's. Uh, personality has become unbearable to everyone around him (laughs) yeah yeah um if i'm not mistaken our next episode is where we're gonna get into the chase right we're gonna do like the next two chapters and then the chase the first day yes uh the pequod meets the light the symphony and then the chase first day is the goal and then after that we're well yeah um spoilers we will meet Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah. God, imagine if the book ended without Moby Dick ever actually appearing. That would be wild. I mean, uh, I mean, would kind... you put it past Melville? Not really. No. Um, that would be kind of amazing, honestly. But, but I, I'm glad that I know that that's not what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. <gasps> but yeah, no, we've got um. Some more omens. Some um. Some very good Starbuck. And then we've got the chase. And then we've got th- the three days. And after that, the epilogue. Yeah. We're very close to the end. What tune is it we sing for, man? A dead whale or a stove boat? 